And I remember getting a, a, a question, like they, they were giving me like a grammar awareness quiz as part of the job application. And one of the questions completely blew my mind. It was very simple. It just said, what's the difference between I went to America and I've been to America? And I, I just read that and I was like, wow, they, they feel different, definitely. But I can't tell you why that they, they just feel, why are they different? And I spent the whole day <laughs> just going about my day, just thinking about that and wondering really what, what is the difference? And I found it very strange because I knew there was a difference. I could feel it deep down inside. I could feel the difference, but I couldn't articulate. I couldn't say what it was. Okay, yeah, welcome back to the Clark and Miller English Podcast. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, then, well, welcome. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, yeah, we're going to get started in a minute. We're going to, I know it's been a long time. It's been a while since uh, I've put a podcast episode up. That's because I've been pretty busy uh, with a new YouTube channel series. Um, yeah, Clark and Miller, we've always had a YouTube channel that's been a bit inactive, but I've started a new, um, a new series. I guess you can call them series on YouTube, YouTube series. Uh, it's called um, Let's Talk About, and yeah, uh, it's full of each video is between like 8 and 15 minutes, and I talk about a topic all that time, and include lots and lots of sort of natural, useful expressions to be able to talk about the topic. I talk about daylight savings, I talk about Halloween, I talk about music, I talk about... Um, travel yeah there's all sorts of different things um yeah and these videos are going up twice a week so don't miss out uh, go and head over to uh the clark and miller youtube channel i mean you know how to use the internet you know how to use youtube you, you just write clark and miller into youtube and you'll find our channel uh so yeah um head over there there's some great uh new videos up uh full of useful everyday words and phrases to talk about particular topics and yeah, of course, as usual, head over to clarkamilla.com. We've got the blog with lots of free lessons. We've got loads of free ebooks and stuff like that. So just wander around uh, the, the website and then check out all the wonderful little things you can get for free for your English. Okay, so today, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, some different, um, four different uh, philosophical grammar, pieces of philosophical grammar. Um, what does that mean? Well, basically, you know, we're going, it's a hot take. This is a hot take episode, and um, I'm going to describe some like interesting observations I've made about English grammar um, that is a kind of different way of looking at things. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but um, yeah, different things, different ways we can look at how certain grammatical features of English work. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's just get started with number one. Okay, the first of these is uh, verb three. Okay, we're going to talk about these verb threes, right? You know what I mean, right? Do, did, done, right? That's verb three. Uh, was, is, was, been, you know, been is verb three, break, broke, broken, you know, this, this past participle or what most people call a verb three. Um, and here's my hot take. Here's what I'm going to claim. I'm, I think these aren't really verbs at all. Um, 
verbs are for actions, right? We use verbs when we want to talk about an action, but I think these are not verbs. This is my controversial hot take. I think these are really just states. So not really actions, but states. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, let's, let's look at some examples. So I think this is most clear when we look at the passive tense. Um, sometimes uh, a passive sentence is very ambiguous. We don't know whether it's an adjective or, or a verb. Um, a really good example of that is uh, something like, you know, he was excited. Or he, he was excited. He was excited by the match. Now, who's excited by the match? Are we looking at a state, an adjective, excited? Is, it, is that a state? Is that an adjective? Or is that a verb? Did the match excite him? So he became excited. And bored, you know, this is another classic example. You know, oh, I'm bored. Oh, teacher, I'm bored. Like, is that, is that a verb or is that a state? I'm bored by the lesson. The lesson bored me. Um, this is very ambiguous. We, we can actually basically say that these are both adjectives and verbs at the same time. These are Schrodinger's adjectives, Schrodinger's verbs. Like you can conceive of them as a verb or you can conceive of them as an adjective. Um, and you can basically describe, you can explain the passive grammar quite easily simply by just saying that it's, it's an adjective. Like we, these verbs are just adjectives and they behave the same way. Uh, what's the past of happy? I was happy, right? Um, and what's the past of like touched? What's the past passive? He was touched. Um, so you can conjugate it in exactly the same way. You know, um, he's being annoying today, present continuous with an adjective, um, or, you know, the building is being built at the moment. It's the same structure. So is it an adjective? Is it a passive verb? It's both. It's Schrodinger's verb. Schrodinger's adjective. Um, yeah, lots of examples. She's bored by the lecture. Uh, they're gone. That's an interesting one. You know, we don't, we do sometimes say they've gone, but we can also say they're gone. Um, we're using gone here much more like an adjective than as a verb. And another a really common example where it's very, very adjective-y and very uh, clear that th this is like an adjective is uh, broken. So broken is an adjective, right? But it's also verb three, you know, it's broken. Um, or it was broken by somebody. So here we have this very ambiguous sort of state of this, this verb three. We've also got sort of a more mid area as well. Like you could say this seat's taken, you know, you're on a bus, somebody wants to sit next to you, but your friend's going to come on on the next stop. And you say, oh, sorry, you can't sit here. This seat's taken. This seat is taken. So again, we have this taken. It's kind of an adjective. It's a state, isn't it? And it's, it's like a passive state, passive verb, but it's more like a state because surely if it was a verb, it would be more, more like the seat will be taken or the seat has been taken. Um, uh, you can also say, yeah, you can't take this room. This meeting room's busy. This meeting room is already booked. Like it's booked. Again, th this verb three is much more like an adjective. Um, and it'll be done. You know, the work will be done. It'll be done. So that again, does that, is that a verb or is that an adjective? Schrodinger's adjective, Schrodinger's verb is, is ambiguous or it's both or it's neither. No, it's got to be one, right? 
Um, we can get more action-y examples. Let's imagine these verb threes moving towards a sort of more when when we say the when we use them, we think more like actions. We think more of more of the verby sort of uh, feeling of it. For example, he was shot. Okay, he was shot. That's definitely that feels more actiony, doesn't it? So it's Schrodinger's adjective or Schrodinger's verb or whatever, but it it feels more actiony. It's being built. It's being built. This was published by Cambridge. These houses were designed in the eighties. So sure, these feel more like verbs, right? They're feeling more actiony, but we can still consider them as a state, right?、Um, it was published by Cambridge. Um, it, it's still conceivable as an adjective. So here, I just want to point out really that this this is very ambiguous. At best, it's ambiguous. At worst, it's not even a verb, and it's masquerading as a verb and trying to get into the verb party where only verbs are allowed. But it's just really an adjective. Verb three, you're pretending to be a verb.、Uh, quite successfully, a lot of people believe you.、Uh, let's look at the other classic、uh, time when we actually. Uh, see verb three in action. That's that's usually with、um, perfect tenses as well.、Um, have done or had done,、uh, has done, will have done.、Uh, these sort of perfect forms, perfect aspects. So yeah, I remember when I was applying for、uh, a teaching job back before my, before my first teaching job. I was.、Uh, Applying to lots of、uh, schools, it was difficult to get a job at the beginning because I had zero experience. I just had my qualification, my CELTA,、um, and I remember getting a, a, a question like they they were giving me like a grammar awareness quiz as part of the job application, and one of the questions completely blew my mind. It was very simple. It just said, "What's the difference between I went to America and I've been to America?" And I, I just read that, and I was like, "Wow, they they feel different, definitely." But I can't tell you why that they just feel. Why are they different? And I spent the whole day <laughs> just going about my day, just thinking about that and wondering, really, what what is the difference? And I found it very strange because I knew there was a difference. I could feel it deep down inside. I could feel the difference, but I couldn't articulate. I couldn't say what it was.、Um, And I can't remember what I ended up writing, but I didn't get the job for that one.、Um, and it's it's weird. It's the sort of thing you kind of know after a bit of time. If you if you if you're an English learner, you sort of、um, you know you can point out you can describe the differences between the past simple and the present perfect. Or if you've been teaching for a while, yeah, you end up doing that lesson, and then you 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 figure it out and you learn what the difference is.、Um, this is called declarative knowledge, by the way, when you can. Not only point out a difference, but explain a difference or explain grammar. A lot of、uh, so-called native speakers don't even have any declarative knowledge. You know, like I was before I took this、uh, took my first job. I couldn't tell you what the difference between he went to America and he has been to America.、Um, I didn't have any declarative knowledge. English learners and English teachers do. But here's the thing: what actually is the difference there? Um, so yeah, after teaching for a few months, I ended up having a lesson, the present perfect lesson, and I learned the difference.、Um, and yeah, basically, what they tell you in the book is that past simple is for one time, and per- present perfect is for general experience. Past simple, he went to America. We're thinking of one time. 
he's been to America, we've got a general experience. We're thinking generally, right? So general experience, what's that? Well, that's a state, right? The state you're in now. If I ask you a question like, have you eaten sushi? Am I interested in the action of you eating sushi? Or am I interested in who you are now and how your experience has shaped who you are now? Now, are you a person who's eaten sushi person or not? I'm not interested in the action. I'm interested in your state uh, because it's probably important. Maybe we're about to go to a sushi restaurant. This present perfect is, is present perfect, right? Present perfect. It's about the present and it's about your state in the present. No action. So another example, if I say I've lost my keys, I've lost my keys. Are we thinking about my state now or are we thinking about the action of me losing my keys? Can we picture the action of me losing my keys? Probably not. We're more interested in my situation now, the state, the state of me not having keys and not being able to leave the house. Um, If we were interested in the action, we'd say, you know, I lost my keys and now the focus is on the action. That's why follow-up questions to this sentence are usually in the past, right? Like I've lost my keys as the general state and then we move on to focus from the state, me not having keys, to the action, where did you last see them? How, how did you lose them? Let's look at what happened. Let's figure it out. Let's investigate the past actions. But yeah, I've lost my keys is about my state, about the present. Is the present perfect? It's about the present. <laughs> it's a state. So again, the lost here, I've lost my keys. I don't think this is a real verb. I think it's a, a, an adjective or a state word pretending to be a verb. Let's look at some more examples of the perfect tenses. Um, I've been working here for ages. Right, again, this is your state now. Uh, we, we, we are now interested in who you are now based on your experience before. So it's, it's a state. It's not an action. She had already seen him. She had already seen him. So she had the scene, <laughs> if you want to break it down really, really weirdly like that. This scene is a little flag and it's indicating a state, not an action. What have you done today? What do you have in your done box? Um, Again, done is the state of now. What have you done? What do you have that is done (laughs) today? And I don't like writing. I like having written. And this is quite an important, this, this sentence actually shows the distinction very well. I don't like writing. Okay, so this is definitely an action, writing. Um, I like having written. I like that feeling you get when you finish writing. You, again, this is a state, right? It's not an action. In fact, it's a non-action even in this case because you don't have to write anymore. I like having written. Written is a word that indicates a state, not an action. Okay, a little controversial, I know. But um, yeah, this is my take. I think, I think it's Schrodinger's adjective. Is it a verb or is it an adjective? But I, no, I'm going a step further. Let's be controversial. I'm saying it's not even Schrodinger's adjective anymore. It's just an adjective pretending to be a verb, dressing up as a verb to get into a verbs-only party and succeeding. 
because it's, it's called the past participle verb and it's sort of called verb three and everyone thinks of it as a verb. But I'm here to, to blow the lid off this investigation and say that I've got you, verb three. You're not a verb. You're pretending to be a verb. What's your real name, verb three? Okay, controversial. If you uh, don't like <laughs> these ideas, or if, you, if you disagree with these, which I'm sure some people will, do write in. Let's have a conversation about it. It's just a hot take. It's fun to talk about these things. Okay, so that was number one. Verb three is not a verb. Verb three is a state. Let's look at number two. Okay, this one is the past is distant. The past is distant. This sounds very poetic, doesn't it? It sounds like some sort of old poem. But um, this isn't me. Uh, the next two uh, hot takes, I suppose, are from Mike Lewis. Now, I, I have done... Uh, keen, keen listeners like yourself will know that uh, I've done a podcast episode and a blog post based on Mike Lewis's book, The English Verb, because I thought it was a very, very refreshing way of looking at English verbs and the way verbs work. Um, even though it was written in the 80s, it's still um, it's still quite enlightening to, to read now. But let's I just want to cover this again because it, it was enlightening. Let's revisit it. So again, um, Mike Lewis uh, puts this very well. There's no better way to introduce this hot take than this. Uh, let's look at the verb said, for example. You know, the past of say, said. If you ask someone, hey, what's that? What's said? What does that mean? Most people will just say, like I just said, that's the past tense of say. Duh, like say, said. It's just the past tense. And yeah, sure, that's true. That's a way of, um, a way of putting it. You know, like he said hello. That's in the past. We use said to indicate the past. Good, done. What's the problem? Well, let's look at some other examples. Uh, let's look at examples like, what was your name again? Okay, past tense, but not the past. If he knew, then why isn't he telling us? If he knew, well, that's the past tense, but it's not about the past. He said that you said that she said that there weren't any lemons left. He said that you said that she said, okay, that seems to be the past, that there weren't any lemons left. Now, is that the past? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I wish he didn't speak like that all the time. Wish he didn't speak like that all the time. Again, that's not the past, but we're using past tense. Um, and one more example with a, a modal, could, uh, past modal, could. Take a jacket. It could snow later. Okay, we're using like could. It's the past, but it's not the past. So yeah, these are clearly not in the past. So what's happening here? Well, Mike Lewis puts it very well and just says this is about distance. It's not about time. It's about distance. So when we look at the, the most common way of using this verb, which is to talk about the past, um, we use the, this tense as temporal distance, basically meaning that uh, a distance in time, you know, and backwards. So it expresses something that's behind us, something that's far away. Um, so fine, okay, the past tense is often used for the past and it's, it's a distance thing in time. What about the other examples? So yeah, what was your name again? What was your name again? So that, yeah, this definitely isn't about the past. So we use this uh, tense to signal 
formal distance. This is distance of um, register, distance of um, like not being too close, being a, a, giving a respectful distance between you and the person you're speaking to. And this is a sort of way of being formal and polite. So we have this sort of social distance, but not in a corona way, in a sort of formal and polite sort of way. So yeah, we can use the past to do that. Um, Another example, uh, if he knew that, then why didn't he, why isn't he telling us? If he knew that, then why isn't he telling us? So we've got if he knew. And also another uh, example is I wish he, I wish he didn't talk like that all the time. I wish he didn't talk like that all the time. So we've got if and I wish. Now a lot of uh, course books will say, yeah, when we use hypothetical situations, we use the past tense. Um, but yeah, if we're not looking at this as a sort of past tense thing, it's more like if, when we have hypothetical situations, we're creating a distance between ourselves and reality because these ifs and I wishes are not real. We want to create distance, so we use this tense, the so-called past tense. And yeah, what about the, the could example? Take a jacket. It could snow later. It could snow later, right? So this is creating a distance between us and what's possible because it's not certain. I suppose it's creating a distance between uh, us and certainty. So it expresses possibility instead of certainty. It could snow later. Uh, using this sort of past tense to, to create that distance. Um, and finally, yeah, he said that you said that she said that there weren't any lemons left so there weren't any lem lemons left is, um, is using the past tense, but we're talking about now. We're talking about lemons now or lack of lemons. Um, and in this case, because we've got this he said, that you said, that she said, um, this is creating a distance of responsibility. You know, it's like we're using the past with this he said because we don't want to claim responsibility for the fact that someone's saying that there are no lemons. Um, it's really cool. Like if you speak Turkish, uh, it's my second language. Uh, there is, and I'm sure in lots of languages, uh, there's a similar sort of thing. There's a, um, a suffix in Turkish. It's the mish suffix, mish. And uh, you use this mish suffix when you want to kind of do this. Um, and you're, you're basically creating an extra like sort of layer of separation between yourself and the claim you're making. Uh, you know, there aren't any lemons left mish, <laughs> um, which means that, yeah, I'm saying this, but I'm not, I'm not taking responsibility for this claim. You can use it to mean he said, but you can also use it to mean like, so I hear, or apparently, or maybe, or like, this is what I'm saying, but this isn't my responsibility if it's wrong. So yeah, we use the past tense to have this sort of distance of responsibility. Um, so yeah, what, what use is knowing all this? Well, this can be useful when you're learning a language like English or even when you're teaching uh, a language like English. If you're a student, thinking about these verbs in this way helps us avoid certain mistakes. It helps us avoid mistakes like I wish I know or he can arrive tomorrow. So having this sort of meta-awareness of how these so-called past verbs work can let us like speak more smoothly and avoid certain mistakes and uh, free our brain up for, uh, for other things. If you're a teacher, 
taking a bit of time to illustrate this point to your students can avoid awkward descriptions. Like saying things like, we use the past tense with wish and could is for the past and for possible future, which are a bit complicated. I mean, they're true, but they're a bit more complicated. But if you make a connection between I could swim when I was a kid, you know, the past, and he could be in the cupboard right now, meaning a distance of uh, possibility. Um, have you looked for him in the cupboard? Because he could be there. Making connections like this leads to better learning. Making connections is what the brain does very well. We, we're always trying to do that. So if we can instead of saying like, oh, we use could here and in this other time, this other situation here, we've got two separate things. By saying that these things are expressing distance in different ways, but they're still doing the same thing, you create a connection between I could swim and he could be in the cupboard. All right, cool. So that's the second one. The past tense, so-called, is not really just about the past. It's about any sort of distance, including time distance. Okay, let's move on. Uh, three out of four. Modals, modal verbs. Modals are personal. Okay, and again, this is a Mike Lewis thing. This is from the, Mike Lewis's book, The English Verb. And again, I think it's worth revisiting. So, Let's look at the sentence. Jasmine loves cats. Cool. Okay. That's the sentence. It's about Jasmine and it's about cats, right? Jasmine loves cats. Very simple, uh, direct, like, claim, let's say. Uh, so this is about Jasmine and it's about cats. There are two actors in this sentence. What if I say, instead of that, what if I say, Jasmine must love cats? So we've inserted this modal verb must. Jasmine must love cats. So now this is about Jasmine, yep, and cats, but it's also about you. If you say this sentence, Jasmine must love cats. This is what you think about Jasmine and cats. By using the word must, you've introduced a little extra, well, you've introduced yourself into the sentence. You're saying, this is what I think about Jasmine and cats. The sentence is no longer objective. Must is a modal verb, and modals are about you, the speaker, plus the characters you're talking about. Jasmine must love cats is about you, plus the people in the sentence. You're in, hidden in the word must there. So I think there's some very good examples we can look at that really show this in action, this way that modals like must, should, uh, can, could, might, may, they all express a sort of personal subjective um, view to the facts you're talking about. So yes, let's have a, a look at the difference between a classic, have to and must. A lot of, a, so many times I've had students ask me, oh, what's the difference between have to and must? must and have to. And, you know, like it's quite a difficult question to answer if you're quite an inexperienced teacher. And even if you're quite an experienced teacher, a lot of people, and, you know, myself included, um, say like, oh yeah, like have to is stronger. Um, and it's kind of true, but I think there's something more to it. We'll look at some more examples later because we've got things like must and have to. We've got things like can, modal, and be able to not a modal. We've got things like will, modal, and going to, 
not a modal. These are like two different shades of the same sort of function, right? So yeah, let's look at some examples. Um, I must see her before she leaves. I have to see her before she leaves. Okay, so in the first example, I must see her before she leaves. This is a personal obligation. No one is pointing a gun at you saying that if you don't see her, you will die. This is just a personal obligation. There's no pressure except, I don't know, personal pressure. I must see her before she leaves. I believe that this is the right thing to do. I must see her before she leaves. I have to see her before she leaves. Maybe there's a gun now. Maybe, probably not a gun. Chances are there's no gun, but some sort of external obligation, another obligation, some sort of pressure telling you that you have to do this, whether you feel it's the right idea or not. Uh, that's why we say something like, you have to wear the seatbelt. The seatbelt, excuse me. You have to wear a seatbelt. I mean, this is the law. This is the, the law of the land. Uh, you have to wear a seatbelt. I mean, whether you think it's a good idea or not, you have to. Uh, we don't say you must wear a seatbelt. That's kind of a personal thing. Although maybe that's the sort of thing people said in the pre-1950s when seatbelts were not obligatory. Um, you must wear a seatbelt. We don't want to die. Um, yeah, I guess that's how they spoke in the pre-1950s. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, yes, and can and able to. Uh, he can finish it himself means I personally believe it's possible that he can finish it. He will finish it. He's able to finish it himself. This is more objective. It doesn't matter what I think. It simply is possible. He is able to finish it himself. So yeah, he can finish it himself. This is I'm inserting myself into the sentence with the word can. And I'm saying, this is what I believe. He's able to finish it himself. It's more objective. And it, you're just stating a fact. Um, finally, let's look at going to and will. Um, they're going to come. They will come. They're going to. They're going to come. This is, again, this is a statement of fact. It doesn't matter what you think. You're just stating a fact here. I mean, sure, you're saying the sentence, so of course this is automatically what you think, but it's you're not saying that this is what you think by saying this. But if you say, they'll come, they will come, they'll come, you're actually saying, yeah, I personally believe, I have faith that they will come. This is my personal opinion. Sometimes these are quite subtle. I mean, this is quite a subtle, um, subtle difference. But yeah, that is it. Modals are a way of it adding subjectivity to a statement. Yes, I guess there's one final example of this is when you have a modal and a non-modal that seem to have the same meaning. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have to work past five o'clock. You shouldn't have to. So what's going on here? Shouldn't and have to kind of have a very similar function, right? Except, except that have to is an external obligation and shouldn't is a personal like opinion. It's saying, I believe that it isn't a good thing that you're made to do this. You shouldn't have to. Cool. Okay. So there we have it. Like modals are a way of making things subjective and, and inserting yourself and your opinions into a sentence. Okay. Let's move on to part four uh, or hot take number four. The future is not real. Okay. So 
Yeah, let's strap yourself in for this one. There are lots of fun details here. Basically, I'm going to argue that there is no future. And as a result, well, I'm going to argue that there is no future in English. Um, and yeah, that's it. The future is not real. We just do not have it. We cannot express the future at all. So let's look at this bit by bit. I'm going to make a, a, a hard case for this. And I'm sure a lot of people will still not agree with me. But let's let's see how this goes. All right. So let's look at will, first of all. You know, will is the, the classic, like, future word, right? We always think, oh, what's the future in English? Will. Okay. But my argument is that, no, will is for now, not the future. Um, I think a really good place to start with this is looking at some German. So this word will is actually really, really old, and it's a Germanic word, and we still have it in German. But ich will in German actually doesn't mean I will. It means I want. So the original meaning of um, will or will is to wish or to desire. Um, yes, ich will means I want, still in German. Um, I'll answer the door has echoes of basically saying I want to answer the, answer the door or I wish to answer the door or I desire to answer the door. If um, I say, you know, I'll give you a hand, you know, I'll, I'll help you out, I'll give you a hand. Uh, I desire to give you a hand. This is the etymology of the word. Um, and, you know, will still has this meaning in English too. Uh, when we use it as a noun, he has the will to do something. Doesn't mean he has the, the future possibility to do something. It means he, he wants to do it. He has the desire to do something. He has the wish to do something. He is determined to do it. Um, yeah, it derives from German and yeah, it derives from the German desire. And I think in a way, I'll do it. I'll answer the door. I'll help you out is more of an expression of a wish than a statement about the future. So yeah, that's it. When we say I will, we're thinking about the present, not the future. That's my, my opinion on will there because the future doesn't exist in English. Okay, so that's me talking about like the general use of will. Let's look at some other examples of will as well. I mean, sure, okay, it's Germanic and it used to mean once, but surely it still means the future now. We've changed the meaning. Yeah, have we though? I mean, let's look at some examples like, uh, will you please stop making that horrible noise? Will you please? This doesn't feel futury. This doesn't feel like the future. This feels like a way of softening a request. And it's it almost feels like, you know, can you please want to not do that? <laughs> it's got this will, this desire feeling. Um, let's also look at when we're describing general behaviors, like it will attack you only if it's hungry. It will attack you only if it's hungry. This doesn't talk about the future. This isn't talking about the future. This is describing a habit, right? It will attack only if it's hungry. This is very general. Again, it, it desires to attack you. It chooses to attack you. Um, what about this one? Ah, oh, don't, uh, like, yeah, he, he won't listen to me. Whenever I talk to him about this topic, he, he just won't listen to me. This isn't talking about the future. This is, again, talking about a habit, a state, a kind of a willingness, you know, a, a condition of desiring or wanting to do something. He won't listen to me means that he doesn't want to listen to me. 
What about when you're making a prediction? Oh, where's Barry? Well, it's five o'clock now. Yeah, he'll he'll be sitting in his tent about now. He'll be sitting in his tent about now. Using will with now. I mean, definitely not the future. Uh, again, will is being used as a sort of um, prediction in this case. He'll be sitting in his tent about now. It's, it's really like a sort of habit. You know, we know it's eight o'clock. We know that Barry will be sitting in his tent because that's what happens at eight o'clock according to Barry's plan. This is not really the future at all. And finally, too much exposure to the sun will harm your skin. Like, yes, this will happen. It's, it can be conceived as futury, but again, this is more about like the ability to do something, the habit of doing something, the 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 sort of willingness of of the reaction to your skin. I'm arguing that will, none of these wills is uh, talking about the future. Um, I think they're all some sort of like desire or some sort of habit. And here's a weird question. What's the past of will? It has a past, right? Would, right? So how can it be the future if it has a past? Well, yeah, it's a bit strange, right? And especially if you look at uh, the sort of phonetic pattern when you compare it to can. He said he can sing. He said he could sing, right? Um, now, can is this sort of present and could is this sort of past. I mean, we've talked about how it's more about distance than past, but we have this can, could pattern, right? And we have the same thing. He said he will sing. He said he would sing. Can, could, will, would. This ud sound, this phonetic pattern, with could being the past tense, so-called, and would being the past tense. So if it's the past tense, will must be the more general verb. It's not about the future. Okay, that was a bit of a hot take there. Um, I was really pushing it there. It was a reach. It was a stretch. But yeah, again, if you, if, you're, if you've got things to say about this, if you disagree with me, I would love to hear from you. Write in, write in. It's gabriel at clarkamilla.com. But yeah, let's move away from will and let's just there are lots of other ways of talking about the future, right? So, uh, yeah, a classic is, of course, going to. You know, this is the will going to type ways of talking about the future. And we don't have to go into the details of those. Um, but there are lots of ways of expressing the future in English. Um, going to is an another example. But here's the thing. Almost all of them use the present tense grammatically that in the present nothing marks the future in English um, and yeah let's look at some examples I'm going to just touch on them here but like we can see that talking about the future isn't really talking about the future it's just talking about the present going to I am going to am present we plan to or we're planning to we are planning to we plan to these are both present present to tenses uh, he's about to, he is about to. I'm on the verge of, I am on the verge of. She's thinking of, she is thinking of. All of this is in the present. The proce procession is to start at 8.30. The procession is to start. That's present and very formal as well, is to start. But yeah, still present. They are bound to, they are bound to present. He's sure to, he is sure to. It's the present. They are certain to, they are certain to. It's the present. All of these ways of talking about the future use the present tense. Um, yeah, it literally is in the present. 
I really like going to, by the way, for this. I am going to. I am on on the way. You, you're like walking towards the action. And the, the action, sure, like it's in the future, but you can't express it because all you can say is that where you are now, because there in the future doesn't exist, right? Uh, you've started the journey, but it's still anchored to the present. It's just telling you, I'm, I'm going to this place <laughs> now. It's the present. Okay, I'm hammering the point home. And finally, uh, the present simple has a role here. I'm not, I'm not going to forget good old present simple. You know, he goes, I do, it starts. Um, and we can t- use the present simple famously when we talk about timetables and programs and things like that. Um, so we can say, you know, the concert starts at seven o'clock or um, his contract uh, ends at the end of the month. Um, uh, or like kids go to bed. We leave at 7 a.m. tomorrow. So yeah, we can use it to talk about scheduled events. And it becomes very strong that you can't argue against uh, the present simple because the present simple has this sort of pure eternal feeling to it. It's like this is just the way things are and you can't change it. You can't break into it. Um, you also, you can do it to be very assertive sometimes. You can say things like, no, I speak to the queen. You don't speak to her. Um, it's so final. It's so like you just can't argue with it. It's an impenetrable tense. Um, and we use it to talk about the future, like uh, especially schedules, like uh, we leave at 7 a.m. tomorrow and the concert starts at 8. And one thing I quite like about this sort of pure eternal feeling that the present simple has is that you can get these clever um, title chapters from old-fashioned books back in the 19th century Um a lot of books would actually have a description of what happens in each chapter at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, here's an example from um, from Mr. Midshipman Easy by Frederick Marriott. Here's uh, his chapter three title. Chapter three, in which our hero has to wait the issue of an argument. Present simple here, right? It becomes indivisible. And uh, from Gulliver's Travels uh, by Jonathan Swift, very famous book, Part two, chapter one, Gulliver lands in Brobdingang, land of the giants. And my favourite from Dickens' Oliver Twist, chapter 27 atones for the unpoliteness of a former chapter which deserted a lady most unceremoniously. So again, you have the storytelling atmosphere. It's not even present. It's just timeless and eternal. So when we use it to talk about future events, we're taking time out of it. It's not even present anymore. Uh, the concert starts at eight. The plane leaves at seven. And it becomes like very difficult to argue against. But again, it's still not the future. It's, it's just timeless. So those are my hot takes about the future. Basically, there are two ways of supposedly expressing futurity, will, or a present tense like going to, and going to. Will is weird and complicated and only really recently used for the future. I mean, in its lifetime, it's, it's quite an odd word. It means want or desire more than it means the future. The present tenses give themselves away immediately here because they are grammatically in the present. We know their game. They are clearly not about the future. And they're kind of fascinating because they seem to be avoiding commitment and responsibility to their role as expressors of the future. But in doing so, they somehow make the future more real, more concrete, because 
when you're saying I'm going to, it kind of brings things to the present and the, and the future becomes more real now. Anyway, yeah, I'm getting a bit deep there. But yeah, um, the future isn't real in English. And that's it. Those are my four hot takes there. Uh, verb three is not a state. It's, a, it's not a verb. Sorry, verb three is a state. It's not a verb. It's a verb in disguise trying to get into a verbs only party. The past is distant. It's not really just the past. It's about many things and uses to express distance. Modal verbs are a way of putting yourself into a, a claim or an expression. And the future doesn't exist. You just cannot make it exist. And we tend to use the present instead. That's it. Well, yeah, thanks for listening. Those are quite hot takes, uh, but it's good fun to have an explore around, around the way language works. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you're still here, I'm guessing you did, or you can't find your phone and you, you haven't been able to turn this off. In which case, good luck finding your phone. Meanwhile, uh, thanks very much for listening. Again, uh, head over to YouTube, check out the Clark and Miller channel. Lots of new, fresh content there. And I will talk to you next time. Until then, ciao for now.